0: Amen. All right. Well, go ahead and turn to, uh, not Isaiah 40, turn to Matthew 5. Uh, we're going to be there, oh, maybe by the end of this first study tonight. Mark and I were adding up the number of weeks uh, that remained in our semester uh, leading up to Christmas. And we had about, I think, nine or ten. We had enough to wear uh, we couldn't just do all of the Beatitudes, we needed the Beatitudes and an introduction. Uh, so the original plan was to jump right into the Beatitudes, uh, but made a little bit of a change, and tonight I'm going to do an introduction uh, to, the, to the Beatitudes, which is essentially going to be a flyover, the go- a flyover over the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and then we'll land somewhere close to, uh, to Matthew chapter 5 uh, and the Beatitudes that we can find there. My guess is that you are a crowd divided this evening. It's OU Texas week. Uh, so, at the Texas State Fair this Saturday, you have a significant football game happening. The stadium will be divided, half burnt orange and half crimson, right? I'm sort of sh- tipping my hand here with what I'm wearing tonight. So, I'm guessing you're a congregation divided. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about the football game. Half of you probably want a whole lot more of the eschatology study that we wrapped up last week. You know, sorting out that material is endlessly fascinating to you. You can't get enough of that area of study. Others of you are really relieved that it's over. Because wading through the different views and the implications of each view can be difficult to sort out. And and though at times it's edifying to try and understand Uh, You never feel like you get beyond trying to understand and moving into actual understanding of some of that material. So two camps, those who want more of the end time study, those who are maybe ready to move out of the fog. Let me say this, as we move into something else tonight, we are not departing entirely from what Mark has been showing us these last five weeks. And what I mean by that is, when we think about what's going to happen at the end... It's very much connected to how we understand the rest of Scripture. And that really couldn't be more true of the book of Matthew. Not only that, it couldn't be more true of the Sermon on the Mount. It couldn't be more true of the section of verses within the Sermon on the Mount that we refer to as the Beatitudes. And if you're wondering exactly what I mean by that, I'm referring to the idea of the kingdom, In our previous study, Mark was clear in his explanation of what is meant by kingdom. It is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. That's what we mean when we talk about the millennial kingdom. So at Faith Bible Church, we are premillennial. We are futurists. We teach that the kingdom remains out in front of us after the rapture of the church, after the seven-year tribulation, after the second coming. So we don't teach that the millennial kingdom is purely spiritual or heavenly or that we are currently living alongside the kingdom like the amillennial position would claim. We don't think that the or we don't teach that the gospel is going to reform and reshape society to such an extent that the church is going to inaugurate a new heavens and a new earth like the post-millennial would claim. We teach a literal future kingdom, Christ reigning for a thousand years on the throne of David and then the end will come. And it's here at this discussion of kingdom that we arrive at our study for tonight. The book of Matthew is a book that is all about the kingdom. Fifty-six times the word kingdom is found in the book of Matthew. Fifty-six times. Thirty-two times the phrase kingdom of heaven is found in the book of Matthew. The gospel starts by showing us the king's royal lineage, You have the the genealogy of Jesus there in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. That is a royal line being laid out in front of you to show us that this Messiah, he is the king. Bethlehem is the site of Christ's birth. That's a village where the Old Testament tells us a king would be born. Wise men show up to honor this king. King Herod is threatened by the coming of this king. And then a herald breaks onto the scene telling people that a king is coming and, a, and the kingdom is at hand. And that's just the first three chapters of the book. The title that Dr. John Walford gave to his commentary on the book of Matthew was Thy Kingdom Come. The title that Dr. Stanley Toussaint gave to his commentary was Behold the King. Warren Wiersbe, another respected Bible teacher, his book on the Beatitudes is Live Like a King. Kingdom language and kingdom ideas, they they permeate this book of the Bible. So as we get into this study, the Sermon on the Mount, and of the Beatitudes in particular, it's important to see what's going on in and around these profound words from Jesus. Because what's going on really is a declaration about the kingdom, it's, it's clarity about the kingdom. Talk about more on that in a moment. Let's talk about some other details first. First, Matthew's gospel, authorship. The author of Matthew's gospel is, wait for it, Matthew. Now, it's not credibly disputed that Matthew... Um, is the writer of this gospel. And though all of the gospel writers remain anonymous in their writing, it is widely affirmed that that Matthew wrote the gospel that bears his name. And as you probably know, Matthew was one of the original 12 disciples. His original name was Levi. He was called into service by Jesus. We see that in Mark chapter 2, also in Matthew chapter 9. And what he was called out of is very important because he was called out of tax collecting. And you know if you've studied this before, that associating with a tax collector was a scandalous thing. When Jesus gets labeled as a friend of sinners, this is largely because of his associations with people like tax collectors. Tax collectors didn't have friends, yet Jesus becomes closely connected to them. He eats meals with them. He has even called one now to be his disciple. And the religious leaders... They don't have a category for this because, any, or because no self-respecting Jewish teacher would want anything to do with a tax collector. It would be this huge stain on your reputation to have a follower or an intimate friend such as Levi. A, a tax collector was the worst of the worst. They were the dregs of, of Jewish society. No self-respecting person would want to associate with a tax collector. And why exactly? Well, as you know, the Roman tax system was quite different than our IRS system. The the, the way it worked was Rome offered tax franchises, and these franchises were sold to the highest bidder. So you had to have some money to get one, and once you got one, it was really a way to make a fortune. You, You basically made your money off of extorting people. You could tax whoever and whatever you wanted, and in doing that, you would then keep a hefty amount for yourself. So just as long as you were passing on the appropriate taxes to Rome, you could fill your own pockets as full as you'd like. So as friends of the Romans working for the empire, these tax collectors, they were the most hated people in all of Israel. You compound that hatred with the fact that Matthew's given name is, as I said, Levi, meaning he's named for one of Jacob's sons. The tribe of, the, is of Israel's priests, the Levites. So Levi is Jewish, which means he has sold his soul to the Romans for money. The Romans are idolaters. The Romans are hated by the Jews. They're Gentiles. They're unclean. The Jews despise them. And so here is a Jew who has sold his soul to Rome. This is a traitor upon traitor. And so how did he get his name from Levi to Matthew? Truth is, I don't really know. We don't have any record of that in Scripture. But I know that he chose his name well because Matthew means gift of the Lord. Gift of the Lord. Maybe you have a son named Matthew, and that's why you chose that name. Matthew saw his call to follow Jesus as a gift in itself. He he obeys this authoritative call to follow Jesus just as the fishermen had done. But for him, but for Matthew... This was a far greater sacrifice than it was for Simon or Andrew or James or John because those men, their profession, there would always be fish in the Sea of Galilee. They could always come back and fish. But Matthew, to give up his tax franchise, he couldn't come back to that. He wouldn't come back to that. So this man really was forsaking everything. This is why Luke, when he describes the calling of Matthew, he says... And he doesn't say this necessarily about the others. He says he left it all. He left it all to follow Jesus. And it's interesting that when Matthew refers to himself, he does so by calling himself the tax collector. There's a beautiful humility in that, isn't there? Think about your most notorious act of sin. Think about consistently referring to yourself by those actions. The drunkard. The liar, the, the porn addict, the, the glutton, the gossip. That, that is Matthew's humility in referring to himself as the tax collector. And it's also, of all of the Gospels, Matthew writes more about money and more about different kinds of money than all of the other Gospel writers. There's almost a universal bit of advice that is given to authors, and that is this, write what you know. Matthew knew, he wrote what he knew. He knew money. And he wrote a lot about money it's it's probably because of Matthew that it can be said of Jesus that Jesus talked more about hell and money than anybody else in scripture and I've always liked that that bit of information because it, it makes me realize that if if Jesus had a church nobody would come because that's all he would preach about was hell and money and nobody would want to come and listen to that at least that's what we're told <clears throat> how about the audience the audience, the primary recipients of, Matthew, of, of the book of Matthew were early Jewish Christians and what we might call Jewish pre-Christians. Therefore, what we read in Matthew it is a gospel with a supremely Jewish flavor, much more so than the other gospels. And there's our, <clears throat> there are a few examples of this that I'll just point out. Matthew cites 60 Old Testament prophetic passages. So these citations are, are less relevant to a Gentile re- a reader, but supremely important to a Jewish reader. Matthew repeatedly cites Jewish, cu- Jewish customs, but with no explanation. So, so the feasts and the social scruples, they have this implied understanding as you read the book of Matthew, because a Jew would understand these little citations and need not an explanation. His language is richly Jewish. He, he calls Jerusalem the holy city. He, he often refers to the law, talks a lot about defilement. The Sabbath is a recurring theme. His name, his favorite name for Christ is Son of David, which is a Jewish title, title for the Messiah. So a defense of Jesus as Messiah is, is found everywhere in Matthew's gospel. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. He's the only gospel writer who employs the term kingdom of heaven. That's fa- that, that phrase is found nowhere else in Scripture. And he uses kingdom heaven, of heaven instead of kingdom of God. Why? Because he is sensitive to, to the Jewish you know, sensitivities concerning the use of God's name. So he wanted to say kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God as to not offend his audience. Its major themes are rooted in the Old Testament, particularly this idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment is a major theme in the book of Matthew. As for the date of this gospel, no one knows exactly when it was written. Uh, there's debate over when Matthew and, or, or whether Matthew or Mark were written first. I tend to lean toward what's called Mark priority, that Mark was written first. I'm not sold on that, but I kind of lean that way. But here's what I do believe. I believe Matthew was written before 70 A.D., and I believe that for a couple of reasons. First, 70 A.D. is significant. You have to know that as a Bible student. That is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the, by the Romans. But this gospel was written in a way that gives no hint that this massive event in Jewish history had yet occurred. So you would think a gospel geared toward a Jewish audience would at least sort of editorially make mention of the temple's destruction. It doesn't. In fact, the prophetic claims that, make, that, 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 that Jesus makes about the temple's destruction, that are recorded in the book. And those, those claims are much, much more powerful in their punch if we know and see that the book was written while the temple was still, still standing. All right. The second major reason, I believe, it was written before 70 A.D. is its copious uh, number of references to the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees are this more secular group of Jewish religious leaders in the early first century. They made up uh, the majority of the uh, Sanhedrin, which is sort of the Jewish Supreme Court. And Matthew's Gospel gives more warnings about the Sadducees than all of the other Gospels combined. And why that's interesting is after 70 A.D., the Sadducees, they largely disappear from influence. You know, they had no temple to profit from. There was no more Sanhedrin. And so they just kind of fade away. And I think he's writing why they are still in power, which is to say before 70 A.D. So I've had to guess. I'd say this gospel was definitely written before the destruction of the temple, possibly around early to mid 60s AD. So though it's the first book of the New Testament, as far as the order of the books, that doesn't necessarily mean it was written first. Its Jewish flavor makes it the one, I think, with the most developed connection to the Old Testament, which makes sense for it to then be first. Warren Wiersbe, he said it this way, if a Bible reader were to jump from Malachi into Mark or into Acts or Romans, he would be bewildered. Matthew's gospel is the bridge that leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I think that's explained really, really well. As for aspirations, as for his aspirations in writing, I think I've alluded to this a little bit already. He was writing a defense of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, as their king. So beyond the Jewish flavor I just mentioned, Specific aspirations connect to this defense or to this apologetic of Jesus' messiahship. Listen to Stanley Toussaint. He succinctly explains Matthew's aspirations in writing. He says, Matthew has a twofold purpose in writing his gospel. Primarily, he penned this gospel to prove Jesus is the Messiah, but he also wrote it to explain God's kingdom program to his readers. One goal directly involves the other. Nevertheless, they are distinct. John Walvoord, who was the one-time, long-time president of Dallas Seminary, he wrote something very similar. He says Matthew's purpose obviously was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That he fulfilled the requirements of being the promised king who would be a descendant of David and that his life and ministry fully support the conclusion that he is the prom- the prophesied Messiah of Israel. As a whole, the gospel is not properly designated as only an apologetic for the Christian faith. Rather, it was designed to explain to the Jews who had expected the Messiah when he came to be a conquering king why instead Christ suffered and died and why there was resulting postponement of his triumph to his second coming. So, so kingdom is front and center to all of Matthew's writing. Matthew presented three aspects to God's kingdom program. and This is where I'm linking now back. I'm, tr- I'm trying to build a bridge from Mark's study to our Beatitudes study and, and, and I'm connecting it I think probably uh, most intentionally at this point. So first, three aspects to God's kingdom program in Matthew. First, Jesus presented himself to the Jews as the king that God had promised in the Old Testament. That's what we see. He's presenting himself as king. That's something that they've been waiting for. It's in the Old Testament. It's prophesied. That's who he presents himself to be. Second, Israel's leaders rejected Jesus as their king, and this resulted in the postponement. Not the cancellation. The postponement of the messianic kingdom that God had promised Israel. And then third, third aspect to God's kingdom program, presented by Matthew. Third, because of Israel's rejections, Jesus is now building his church in anticipation of his his return to to establish the promised messianic kingdom on earth. So, so mixed in to all this kingdom language and, and, and these aspirations for the reader to see why the kingdom didn't come in fullness when the Messiah showed up, within that, we also have Matthew give explanation on the church. Matthew alone, among the gospel writers, references the church. does in chapter 16, it does in chapter 18. He recorded Jesus' prediction of the church, as, as well as instruction about how his disciples should conduct themselves in the church. The Lord created the church in, in view of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, though it was also and always... In the eternal plan of God to do so. So the church exists because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, but at the same time, it was in the eternal plan of God for us to to live and for there to be a church age. Therefore, we can say that Matthew's approach is not necessarily chronological. So if you read the book of Matthew or you're trying to harmonize the Gospels with Mark and Luke and figure out the order of events, these events are not necessarily in the order in which they occurred. Or or even the discourses or the the, the teaching uh, is not necessarily in the right order. Maybe maybe these are distillations of the consistent teaching of Jesus throughout his ministry, Not, not concise transcripts of each sermon. Either way, all of it is arranged to make Matthew's point about the identity of the king and about the nature of the kingdom. That's what we have here. That's why it's laid out the way it's laid out. And so let's talk about arrangement, and then we'll discuss uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'll briefly introduce the Beatitudes. uh, Most people arrange Matthew according to the five major discourses of Jesus that are recorded in the book. So so the the book is organized around five major blocks of teaching. Mark, that gospel is associated with action. Jesus is always on the move. He's not recording a lot of Jesus' teaching. He's recording lots of, um, of, of action, lots of what Jesus was doing, not necessarily a lot of what he was saying. The book of John, that's organized around these seven I am statements that make up the book of John. You know, the I am statements of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. And, and I am the resurrection of life. And so on and so forth. Matthew, you have five discourses. Five discourses. Go ahead and turn your, your uh, sheet over to the back. <clears throat> I put three different examples of ways that, that people organize or arrange the book of Matthew. The first one, the one on top, is sort of the typical. Uh, way, which is around the five discourses. And this is helpful because, excuse me, Matthew consistently um, works his way, or systematically, I should say, works his way uh, through the life of Christ by giving us a block of narrative, and that block of narrative intentionally introduces a block of teaching. And then you have a short transition. And that short transition gets you to another block of narrative, which very intentionally gets you into one of the the next discourse, another block of teaching. And that's how it's arranged. So the the discourses there, or the teaching there in the in in that middle um, column, you have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. You have the instruction of the 12 in Matthew chapter 9 and 10. That's the second major discourse. The third major discourse is in Matthew chapter 13. This one is extremely pivotal. This is where the book takes a a very sharp turn. And that, that discourse is on the parables of the kingdom. On the parables of the kingdom. Leading up to that, in chapter 12, you have a lot about Israel's rejection of Jesus as king. The parables explain that. And then from that point, we have that this idea of postponement of the kingdom that that Christ's literal physical reign is going to be postponed and something that's going to be very much future and not enacted immediately immediately so Matthew 13 is this sort of pivot point in the book and that discourse is connected to it the fourth major discourse is one on childlike faith and then and then you have Matthew 24 which is Uh, the Olivet Discourse and you need a kind of a secret decoder ring to figure that one out uh, if you're familiar with the Olivet Discourse. So those are the five discourses that is a good way to think through the organization of the book. I also found a couple of other things just to put in here as far as organization Uh, a guy named Farmer has this chiastic structure to Matthew Uh, there are some Bible scholars that find a chiasm or a chiastic structure everywhere in the Bible. Um, I'm not as good at that as, as others are, uh, but I thought this one was, was helpful. Uh, it's essentially sort of a parallel structure, again, with, with uh, chapter 13 being uh, the pivot point uh, in the chiasm, uh, where it then works the other way. And then you have a, a view that looks at Matthew as a recapitulation of Israel's history. And you can see there uh, in that bottom graphic the way in which the book of Matthew parallels a lot of the material that's first of all in the in the Pentateuch Uh, and that's just the first you know seven chapters there there are people that take this recapitulation of israel's history all through uh, the book of matthew through its 28 chapters uh, all the way to the end so just some helpful things to kind of um, organize the book of matthew like i said that graphic on top is probably the most typical way that you can organize it and and it's a little bit simpler and, and sometimes simpler is more helpful. At least it is for me. So again, Matthew wanted his readers to do what John the Baptist and Jesus had called the people of their day to do, which is namely repent. For why? For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of the king to his people. And the message of the king's herald, John the Baptist, it was his message as well. He had called the people to prepare for the king's coming and their, their, their message was essentially the same. Repent. Now, this is not the final message of Christianity, but it is the message that Matthew wanted his readers to wrap their, their hearts around. They called the people of their day to trust in and follow Jesus because the messianic kingdom was immediately at hand. It was coming soon. And if the Jews had responded positively to Jesus, he would have established that kingdom immediately. He would have died on the cross and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and ushered in the tribulation, returned to earth and established his kingdom. All these, all those things were, were subjects of the Old Testament prophecies, the Messianic prophecies that had to be fulfilled when Messiah came. But that's not what happened. Israel rejects Jesus. Therefore, the Messianic kingdom is at hand for us today in a different sense. Jesus Christ has died. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven but the tribulation is now still future. Following those seven years, Jesus will return. He will establish his messianic kingdom on earth. And so the commission that Jesus has given us as his disciples is to prepare people for the king's return. And to do this, we go into all the world and we herald the gospel to everyone. We make disciples, we call them to trust in and follow the king as we are. And so essentially the message of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The proper response to the message is repent, prepare yourself. And so we can still speak of kingdom. A lot of people want to avoid the word kingdom because they only want to associate it with the millennial kingdom. And I totally understand that. We don't want to have this sort of category confusion as to what the kingdom is. The kingdom is, is, the millennial kingdom is, is, is literal, it is future, Christ will come and, and, and he will reign on the throne of David. That is going to happen. But we can still at the same time, even though we're not in that kingdom, we can refer to ourselves as kingdom citizens, as subjects of the king. And that's where I want to now drill down and talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a record of the greatest teaching in history. This sermon is the pinnacle of all religious thought. It was given its name by Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century. No one called it the Sermon on the Mount until that point. And because of all this kingdom language that we've been talking about, approaching the Sermon on the Mount requires a broad understanding of the whole book of Matthew. So simply stated, without some understanding of the context of the sermon, you're going to misunderstand the whole sermon. So that explains my very long, sort of obtuse introduction of this book. Lots of people misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I want to I lay out a few of the views of the Sermon on the Mount so you can see what I'm talking about. The first view that I don't hold, it's held by many interpreters who believe that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to enable people to know what God required so that by obeying his requirements, they might obtain or earn salvation. This is the soteriological interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Soteriology is the study of salvation, so this is the salvific interpretation, that the Sermon on the Mount is a treatise on how you can be saved. And there are a couple of reasons we should reject this interpretation. First, it it contradicts the many passages of Scripture that present salvation as something that is impossible to attain by your good works, right? It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by your works, lest any man should boast. So we don't have a program laid out here that tells us the requirements that if we obey them, then we are saved. second um, reason we should reject this interpretation is the extremely high standards that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount make actually performing or attaining these requirements impossible for everyone anyway. Matthew five forty eight: be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is an impossible standard. Okay? So it's, we don't take a soteriological view of this sermon. We don't take a sociological view either. The sociological view sees it not as a guide to personal salvation, but to the salvation of society. Uh, One of our former presidents, President Harry S. Truman, good Baptist he was, but he held this view. He was once quoted as saying, I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are two main problems with this view First, it assumes that people can improve their society simply by applying these principles, and history has shown that that this is impossible without someone to establish and administer this kind of a society globally. If there's one little corner of society that's doing this, that's great, but it's not going to reform the entire planet. Second, this view stresses the social dimension of Jesus' teaching to the exclusion of the personal dimension, which was, why, which was exactly what Jesus was emphasizing in this sermon. This is a personal sermon. This is not a societal sermon. So the sociological view leads to what many refer to as the social gospel, uh, and we don't, we, don't, we don't take that view. We don't go that direction um, with it. Third view that I'd like to point out is, uh, is those that believe that Jesus gave the sermon primarily to convict his hearers about their sins. So they believe that his purpose was to make them realize that their only hope of salvation, their only hope of participation in his kingdom was God's grace. And somebody has referred to this as the penitential approach. The penitential approach. A proponent of it said... Thus, what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount is the climax of the law, the completeness of the letter, the letter which killeth. And because it is so much more searching and thorough than the Ten Commandments, therefore does it kill all the more effectually. The hard demand of the letter is here in the closest possible connection with the promise of the Spirit. And so, I don't necessarily disagree with that that conclusion. You, You can read the Sermon on the Mount and go, man, I fall way short and and god used that to 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 draw you unto himself but i think the main problem with this overall approach is that it fails to recognize that the primary listeners to the sermon they were jesus's followers they were his disciples and while not all of them believed in him most of them did And, and it seems clear that he called them he said to them as he's preaching you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world he taught them to address God in prayer as father. That implies an intimate kind of relationship. He, not one in which they are separated from God, but one in which they are reconciled to God. He also credited them with having already served the Lord in their, in their ministry. So now, certainly, the sermon convicted those who heard it of their sins, but I think it had a larger purpose than just that penitential purpose, than just to convict. It's not just a new measuring stick that we can see how far short we, we actually land. The fourth view, and there are five, so I'm going to get to the end of this eventually. The fourth view sees the sermon as applying exclusively to that future earthly messianic kingdom. This is what's called the millennial view, that the Sermon on the Mount is only for kingdom citizens living in the millennial kingdom. And the main problem with this view is Jesus frequently, in the sermon itself, he references the conditions that are not consistent with the millennial kingdom. For example, Jesus says that his disciples will experience persecution for his sake. He talks about wickedness abounding in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. He tells them that they should pray for the coming of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If it's for this millennial kingdom, why, why are we praying in that manner? It talks about false prophets who are going to pose a major threat to Jesus' disciples. If this only described or prescribed what the disciples were going to experience when Christ would reign from David's throne, these cautions would not be in the sermon. They should not be in the sermon. Uh, Dr david martin lord jones he, he condemns this view at length in his introduction to the sermon uh, on the mount he has a two-volume uh, book set on the sermon on the mount and he, he really goes after this view problem is he calls it the dispensational view um, and i don't think he characterizes it quite right it's not directly associated with what you and i might think of when we think of dispensationalism and then the fifth view this is the best one okay this is where we're going to land this is where this, this is the view that says the sermon presents ethical instructions for Jesus disciples that apply from the time that Jesus gave them until the beginning of the kingdom. This is this is the interim approach to interpreting the sermon, the interim approach. And there are a, a few factors that that commend this view. I think it does fit best into the the, the historical situation, into the context for the giving of the sermon. So Jesus has has been announcing that the kingdom is at hand. He's been doing these miracles to display his authority that he can make that claim. And so his next move now is to give instructions to his disciples about preparing for the kingdom's inauguration, about the kind of people who are going to be be kingdom subjects. Who are going to be glad um, um, subjects to the king. Second, this view recognizes that the primary recipients of the sermon, as I said, were Jesus' disciples whom he taught. They were salt and light. God was their father. Righteousness is is to characterize and would characterize their lives. Third, the sermon dealt with, with the good fruit resulting from repentance that Jesus' disciples should manifest. Every tree, says in chapter 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus wanted his hearers to bring forth fruit that's worthy of repentance, and he describes that fruit in this sermon. This is what it looks like to be a a, a fruitful believer. Many have noticed the similarity between Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and a book like the Epistle of James. James also stresses the, the importance of, of believers producing fruit, godly character, good, good, good works. All the New Testament epistles, I think, present high standards for believers to maintain regarding how they live. And these are not to be commands that are at odds with being saved by God's grace. No, not at all. These are calls to godly living that flow naturally out of Jesus' good instruction, flow naturally from what it looks like to live a Spirit-led life. It's only with the Holy Spirit's enablement and only with the believer's dependence on the Lord can we live in line with what's laid out here in these three chapters. The sermon both describes the believer, so the kingdom citizen is described here, and it also prescribes an ethic for the believer, something for the kingdom citizen to follow and to lean into and to walk after. So you have a description and a prescription. Some people want to draw a hard line and say, no, it's only descriptive. Others want to say, no, it's only prescriptive. I think it's both. I think it's both with the Spirit's power. And it all starts with the Beatitudes. Christ does not begin his Sermon on the Mount as the law had been given on Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19 and 20. You go and you, and, you, and you read that scene in the book of Exodus and there you have commands and threats and you have trumpets sounding and fire is flashing in the sky and the earth is shaking and there are dark clouds and there is thunder. The Israelites are, are afraid and rightly so. But here... Jesus is on the Mount, and he begins with promises and with blessings. And that's why we refer to these promises and blessings as Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from a Latin word, Beatus, that means happy. It means blessed. So, So the word Beatitude is about happiness. It's about blessedness. These verses tell us what it means to be happy or blessed. Matthew 5, 1 through 12, this is, the, this is the blessed life that we're going to be looking at. Now, and this goes to the title for, our, for our, our study series, on social media, whether you're an Instagram person or a Facebook person or a Twitter person or maybe you've just boycotted all of it, which is probably the best move anyway, you, you, you will see people post things about their life and when things are going swimmingly, when things are going really, really well, and when the picture uh, is just taken at the right angle and at the right time of day and with the right aperture, you often will see this hashtag associated with the picture, and it will be hashtag blessed. Oh, I'm so blessed. Look at, my, look at my vacation. Look at my new vehicle. Look at uh, how cute my child is. I'm not saying nice things, nice vacations, and cute kids aren't a blessing. They, they, they are. We're not wrong to desire them necessarily. That's not what I'm saying. Listen to Pascal. Pascal said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire to, is the same desire in both, attended with different views, We will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Happiness, blessedness, all men seek happiness. And Jesus here shows us what it looks like. And in doing so, he turns the whole world, what the whole world would have thought of as blessed, he turns it completely on its head. He turns righteousness completely on its head. He says this is not about externals. This is about the heart. And So let's just read it as we close tonight. Matthew chapter 5. I'll try not to turn to the wrong book. Verses 1 through 12. A lot of you memorized this, the 23rd Psalm over the last month. Maybe you already had it memorized, but you recommitted it. These Beatitudes might be something over the next couple of months that we can commit to memory together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, inspired of the Holy Spirit. Matthew writes Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, He wrote a book on the Beatitudes called The Applause of Heaven, and he says it this way, God applauds the poor in spirit. He cheers the mourners. He favors the meek. He smiles upon the hungry. He honors the merciful. He welcomes the pure in heart. He claps for the peacemakers. He rises to greet the persecuted. And so we'll look at these individually. And but what I want you to see, just briefly tonight as we close, is this is also a whole. There are individual things that we're going to look at as we, as we march through this one by one. But these are also a whole. This is, th- these are things that build on one another. I've referred to this at times as the stairway to heaven. God applauds the poor in spirit. So if you recognize your spiritual poverty, what is that going to lead you to do? It's going to lead you to mourn. You're going to mourn over your sin. And that's going to produce a meekness in you. And that, 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 that meekness is then going to give you a, a hunger and a thirst for the things of God, for righteousness. And as you hunger and thirst for the things of God, that's going to produce in you the character of God. Things like mercy, things like purity of heart, things like seeking peace with the brothers and, 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 and others in the world. And that posture of life is then the kind of thing that's going to get you persecuted. See how this links together? We're going to look at it individually, but we're also going to be mindful of the whole. And we're going to be mindful of the blessing, I think, that comes with looking at this. I think about the Old Testament and, and one of the key sort of benedictions in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to, to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace the blessing of the lord is what we're after as we look at this together i I read this afternoon as i was kind of finishing up um, some study for this in this little booklet by rc sproul how can i be blessed he says the beatific beatific there we go the beatific vision is the promise that in our glorification we will see god as he is his face will shine upon us right We will move then to a whole new level of personal satisfaction, of personal joy and fulfillment. In short, true blessedness. This kind of blessedness penetrates into the deepest chamber of our souls. And it overwhelms the soul with a sense of sweetness, delight, satisfaction, and contentment that knows no bounds. It's this kind of blessedness that we will consider as we study the Beatitudes. I think that's what we're going to be considering over the next you know nine or ten weeks, the sweetness, the delight, the satisfaction, the contentment that knows no bounds, that finds these things uh, in a relationship uh, with jesus as as his kingdom subjects so let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be finished tonight. Father, thank you for this time together. I thank you for uh, your word, I thank you for this gospel that is so rich and as we've skimmed over the top of it tonight lord I, I pray that that you will use some of these things to encourage the hearts in this room. Lord, I, I pray that you prepare us all for a, a study of these uh, 12 verses. That as we look at, at these blessings, as, as we look at this blessed life, these beatitudes, God, we would, um, we would see the upside-down kingdom that, uh, that you've instituted. And we would not run from it, we would run into it. Uh, and, and, and these things would both describe our lives and also push us uh, into a deeper into a deeper stage of blessedness as well thank you for these people thank you for their, their their willingness to be here together I pray that they could encourage one another as they leave and then encourage the other people in their lives uh, as well as the week moves along I pray all these things in Jesus name amen